Things have been going good here at Grace this summer. It's just been a great summer. I mean, our attendance for summer has been tremendous. And I uh, appreciate your faithfulness being here. And, and uh, children's area is getting close to being done. Just been a, a great uh, summer for us. I hope yours has gone good. It's going fast, isn't it? Man, it's going to be over with here pretty soon. School starting up. And yeah, wow, I can't believe it. We're doing a two-week study look into the small letter of Jude. And uh, um, if you don't know a lot about it, that's probably not that unusual. A lot of Christians know it's in our Bible. We just don't know why it's there. And so we're going to look at it. If you're turning in your Bible, it's right at the end. You know, you got the book of Revelation and just before that, the letter of Jude. So if you want to turn there, you can do that. It's a book with sort of a tough message. It's, a, it's a, a book about fighting, and we'll try to flesh that out a little today. Started out really with a pretty simple intro there. Verse 1 is the greeting, sounds pretty typical. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved of, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So Jude's right, popular name back then. A lot of guys were named Jude. There's several of them, Jude or Judas uh, in the New Testament. Uh, you can imagine why the translators would go with the name Jude here, though, right? I mean, in fact, there's a number, as these look at these guys, only one of them has a brother named James, and that one is the one that is the half-brother of Jesus. So that's who's writing this letter, the half-brother of Jesus. We know Mary and Joseph went on after Jesus to have other children. We know that because they're mentioned in Scripture. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, talks about when Jesus went back to Nazareth, and the people there are questioning where he got his wisdom and his power. And they ask, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James and Joseph and Simon and... Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They're like, we know this guy. This guy there's nothing special here. We know his family. Where did he get his power? Where did he get his wisdom? But for our sake this morning, there in the middle is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. That's our guy. That's who's writing what we're reading. But we also know Jesus' brothers weren't believers at first. In, in fact, they thought he was nuts. Um, once when he went back to Capernaum and was gaining in popularity, his family responded. And in Mark 3, 21, it says, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. They looked at Jesus like, hey, the lights are on, but nobody's home. You know, he's one taco short of a combo meal. That's, and, and you may, and you know how it is, you may have family members you think the same thing about, you know, or, or you may be the family member. <laughs> and did you notice these guys took this so seriously that they were going to take custody of him? And that's where they were at. That's how they viewed him. But then something dramatic happened. There's a complete change because later 
We see them with the believers waiting in the upper room after the resurrection and ascension in Acts 1, 14. It says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they went from thinking he was crazy to being fully convinced that he was the Christ. Why the change? Well, it had to have been the resurrection, right? I mean, when your brother dies, and then three days later, he suddenly gets up, that'll probably do it for you. And, and now here's Jude. Notice he doesn't point out that he's Jesus' half-brother. I, I think out of a sense of humility. I mean, if that had been you or me, don't you think we'd have played that card? You know, I, no doubt. He not only doesn't do that, but he also humbly points out that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. See, he's not only a believer in Jesus, he also has completely surrendered his life to him. So there's been this huge transition. And he's writing here, writing to those who he calls the called, the loved, and the kept. Called, loved, and kept. Great way for us as believers to think about our relationship with him. He called us, right? An invitation went out to us. If you're a follower of Christ, you know what it was like to have him call you, to draw. He was the one who initiated the relationship. He went after us and drew us to himself. He loved us. He loved us then. He loved us, loves us now. He'll always love us. And he keeps us. Keeps us, he'll never let go of us. You know, there's something very extremely personal about this. The called, the loved, the kept. It's great, not because we're so great, but because of his great grace toward us. We are called and loved and kept. So instead of thinking we're okay because well, we're, we're good enough to be accepted and you know, people should, people, certainly our relationship with God, we think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm good enough to be accepted, Don't, I shouldn't be put down, everything's good. Instead of thinking we're okay because of us and all the other fluff stuff that comes from our culture, think about how an unworthy person like me, like you, has been called and loved and kept by the eternal God of heaven. I mean, you want a good perspective on life? That will do it. Accepting the fact that we're unworthy. That's okay. I'm not worthy. It's okay. That will humble you. But know that he called you anyway and loved you. That will make you grateful. And he keeps us. That will empower you to keep going, to get going, to do what God has for you to do. And what Jew wants to be once for these called, loved, and kept is mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, multiplied, and it has been, hasn't it? I mean, it's just not added to our lives. It's not just an addendum to us. No, he multiplied to us mercy, peace, and love over and over and over again. We experience it every moment of life. So good, so good. I mean, it's almost like you can stop with these first two verses 
and be done, right? Just thinking about that we are called and loved and kept and he has multiplied to us his mercy and his peace and his love. We could be done, but we're not. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to all the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So here we go with what's actually going on. Jude's like, hey, I, I would much rather, I, I, I intended to write a real positive letter to you guys. It was going to be so good. I, I was looking forward to it so much to write a good positive letter, talk to you about our common salvation, the salvation that we share. And, and how good would that be? Everybody likes to talk about the goodness of our salvation, all that we get to experience in Christ together. That would have been a fun letter. Judah's like, I wanted to do that. But instead, something else, I felt the necessity to write. There's something else I had to do. Not my first choice, but something I felt like I needed to do. And I'm appealing to you, he says. I'm appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. He's talking about putting up a fight. A fight for the faith. Contend. The, the Greek is the word epigonitsisthai. Got it? <laughs> and in that long word right in the middle of it is the word we get, agonize. Agonize for the faith. The question then comes out. Do we, do, do we ever agonize for the faith? Are we, in, are we in the fight? You know, it's one of the big questions of life that we need to have answered. What sacrifices are we willing to take for the faith? Some of you know, Becky and I just got back a few weeks ago from Germany. Went over there to visit our daughter and her family. Is there, there her husband Cameron's a... Uh, chaplain in the army stationed there in Germany, so we had a chance to go over and visit them. And we were over there for a couple of weeks, and, and the first week, all we did, they, they picked us up in Munich at the airport, and we, when we drove, and we traveled uh, for the first week, and we just went around and saw different things. First thing we did was, we headed down to Salzburg, Austria. And in Salzburg, there's this fortress, I think I got a picture of it here. There's a fortress in Salzburg that's up on a hill, you can see from just about anywhere in the city. And I wanted to go up there and see it because you can walk through it. And uh, I like history. And so this is like from the 1400s. It would have been great to be able to walk through it. So we're, as we're walking through Salzburg, we're looking for a, a way to get up there. And can't find it, can't find it. Walking all over the place. Finally, Carrie spots this road that looks like it's heading up that direction. So we go that way and we start climbing and man it is that that picture did not make it look as steep as that was it was uphill 
And it was a long way. And, you know, pretty soon some of us are starting to sweat. And then starting to breathe really hard. Some of us were. <laughs> and and it's and it, and you're just trudging up this. I'm just I can't believe we're not. That's a long way up there. And I keep looking. And you keep climbing. You keep looking. And it seems like you're just not getting anywhere close. And uh, you know the kids. They're all sort of. They're done. You know. And um, but we we put them on our shoulders or whatever. We keep, we finally, we get about three quarters of the way up and come around this curve. And we've been walking and walking and walking. Finally, come around this curve and look and straight and right ahead of us, right up the hill goes this tram. <laughs> People on their way and smiling. You know. It's like, oh man. And then, so we're looking at each other like, I can't believe we just did this. And, 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 and so we, you know, shrug our shoulders and keep on walking. We walk the rest of the way up. And then we get up there and we've got to pay to get in. And the ticket that we paid to get in also covered the, the tram. <laughs> Which we took down the hill, by the way. You ever spend a lot of energy fighting for something that wasn't really necessary? You know, I think we do that all the time. We do that with our lives. We spend our time and our effort and our money on all kinds of things that in the long run won't matter. They won't matter for eternity. That will never happen if we're contending for the faith. So again, this is really one of the big questions in life. What are we fighting for? What are we spending our time and energy on? The fact is, believers always need to be in the ring I know we all want to talk about peace. We want to feel good. Nobody likes to talk about fighting, but sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes there are things worth fighting for, right? So why fight? Because of the value of what we're fighting for. And in this case, it's the faith. You notice he says, I, I, I feel a necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Not just faith, some nebulous idea out there, but the faith, the essence of what we believe in, the essence of the truth that has changed our lives, the truth that brings stability and purpose to us, that truth, that truth that was handed down to us. We've all got things that have been handed down to us, right? Things and like from family and such. And those things are valuable to us. They may not be necessarily valuable monetarily, but they're valuable to us on a sentimental level. I've got a, a shotgun, a short-barreled, double-barreled 12-gauge that was my dad's. That gun is not for sale. <laughs> and it never will be because it has value to me that I can't put a number on. 
We've all got things that have been handed down to us. Well, our faith has been handed down to us, and it is priceless. It's priceless. Handed down and entrusted to us. Generations have passed it on down. Established by our Savior and the apostles and handed down generation after generation to us. It's priceless. So we don't get to dictate how we handle it. And it was handed down to, to all of us. It's not just, it says here, to the saints. That's the church itself. It's not some special group in the church. It belongs to all of us, given as a trust to us. So when the essence of our faith is challenged, we're called to fight for it. But why? Why at this moment is Jude calling in a fight? Well, it's because there's some people who have crept in. He says, they've crept in unnoticed because the attacks against our faith are real. And they don't just come from outside the church. They sometimes come from inside. And sometimes there are people, people who claim to know Jesus, that start ever so slightly adjusting their beliefs. You know, it's a lot like Pastor Kevin has touched on in the last couple of weeks, where whole denominations shift it happens, though, in small steps initially. Start shifting on essential issues until one day they end up somewhere out in the left field on those beliefs. That's what was happening here in this letter. Jude warns about people from inside the church, and it's, and it's not a typical warning that we see a lot in the New Testament, you know, where uh, writers are warning us about legalism, where men have added a bunch of man-made rules to the faith. Now, these guys went the other direction and took away from what God had instructed. They saw grace as a license to live as they pleased. And you can imagine the argument. It goes like, hey, if I'm saved and heaven has been promised to me and I can't lose it, then, man, I can live however I choose, right? I mean, Jude says here, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. But by doing that, he says, they deny our master and Lord. Sounds serious, and it is. The apostle Paul addressed that exact question in Romans 6. If you remember, he had made the argument early in the book of Romans, first four chapters, that we are justified by faith alone. That we are sinners, guilty, can't fix it, we're not good, can't fix it on our own. So we come to him by faith. And faith, by faith, we are justified with no work of our own. And then in chapter 5, if we've been justified by faith, we are kept by God. So all great news up until that point. But then Paul answers the obvious question. Well, if that's the way it is, I could just go on and sin, right? Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Hey, is it, a, is it a good thing when I sin? Because then grace just gets, there's more grace. What do he say? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, that, that's, it may seem like a logical argument to some, but it's a complete opposite of logic. We died to sin. We can't live in it. These are guys 
who've rationalized their sin by assuming on God's grace. You know, as Christians, we don't get that option. Because in doing that, they change the essence of our faith. It's what we call apostasy. When someone defects from the truth. I, I got to tell you, though, while we don't take that on as a formalized way of thinking, you know, as, as Christians here, we don't, we don't start purposely walking away. I think sometimes we can do essentially the same thing without thinking it through. You know, if we're not careful, we can do some things and rationalize our sin. Coming up with some reason why we think it's okay. We, we justify it. We come to the conclusion that it's, boy, it's acceptable if I decide to, you know, end my marriage. Even though I don't have biblical grounds, I, I got to tell you, you know, we just, we grew apart and, you know, that, or that person's not been, you know, what I dreamed they would be, so I, I need to move on. And without biblical grounds, we justify our reason for taking a step that God doesn't want us to do. Or we have an affair, and we justify it. You know, this person fulfills me. This person really loves me. And I'm not like my husband or wife. This person really loves me. I, I just can't help it. And we rationalize. We rationalize Telling a lie, we rationalize losing our temper, we rationalize cheating on our taxes, whatever. We've got a reason, and we act like it's no big deal because I've got a reason for doing what's opposite of what God says. But Jude would want us to know it's a big deal. Sin in the church is a big deal, and the faith that we've been given is a big deal. We should fight because of the value of what we're fighting for. Sometimes we have to fight against ourselves because of the value of what we're fighting for. We should also fight because of the judgment that God pronounces. He gives three examples next of the Old Testament, from the Old Testament of judgment that came on people because of their sin. Verse five, now I desire to remind you, though you know all th things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude compares the apostates of his time to these groups that had sinned blatantly and inexcusably and the judgment of God fell on them he says I desire to remind you that's what happens a lot of times from this platform when we're speaking uh, preaching Matthew Henry you've heard his name maybe he did a commentary that a lot of people look back on he's a minister from the back in the 1600s he said one time preaching is not designed to teach us something new in every sermon but to put us in remembrance to call to mind things forgotten. And so Paul talked about reminding people. Peter talked about reminding people. Here's Jude saying, I'm going to remind you. Remember what happened back in the Old Testament with these people? 
the nation of Israel? Think about it. God went to great lengths, right, to deliver the people out of Egypt. I mean, he sent the plagues. He did all. He, he divided the Red Sea. He provided water. He provided food. He provided direction. He, he did all kinds of stuff to, to deliver them. But the very same people he delivered, he also brought judgment on. That, that, that generation that he brought judgment on because of their unbelief, God judged an entire nation that he had just rescued. He can do that. So fight for the faith. That's Jude's point. Keep fighting for the faith. Don't, don't walk away. Don't be convinced by these guys. Fight for the faith. What about the angels, he says, do not, who did not keep their own domain? They didn't stay in their natural place in heaven. And there's a debate about exactly what he's talking about here, but most scholars go back to Genesis 6, where some rebellious angels took earthly wives for themselves, and God strongly judged them so strongly that he bound them in chains and darkness until the final judgment. The point being, even angels get judged by God. Nobody's exempt from God's judgment. Watch out. Keep fighting for the faith. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. We know the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was shown in the story of what happened with two angels who came to Lot's house. And the men of the city came demanding that Lot send out the visitors that they saw as two men so that they could assault them sexually. Awful stuff. And Lot even offered his daughters in their place. And what did God do? God brought judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah from their immorality. See, we don't get to define what's right and wrong. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't get to define it. It can't be, I, I, well, I, I want to, isn't love love? Can I just love who I want to? No. God called it strange flesh. It's outside of his design. And because of it, he brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Fight for the faith. Verse 8 says, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude goes back again to the people of his time here. He's given these three Old Testament examples of judgment because of sin. In the same way, he says, those that Jude is warning about, watch them. Make sure you determine your own boundaries. These guys that were, he was struggling with, these guys that were there, that were there unbeknownst to everyone else, they came in. They say, well, I've got, I, I dreamed, and God spoke to me in a dream. That was their authority. And you say, you got to be careful. Can't let that become your authority. I have people a lot of times tell me, well, God told me to do this. God told me to do this. I've always got to ask, how, how do you know it was God? Because I've had people tell me, God told me to do this, and it's in direct opposite of what God's word says. 
And I'm going, that, that's not God. These guys are relying on dreams. Can't become our authority. Our feelings, our desires can't become our authority. Certainly not if what we get goes against the will of God, the word of God. These guys are all about exalting their own status, even at the expense of the status of angels. The Jew brings it here. What Jude calls reviling angelic majesties. And he gives us an example of someone who is careful in that area. That is Michael, the archangel. We're told he is disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. That, that incident isn't something recorded in Scripture. That's a, it comes from a book called The Assumption of Moses that was known in the early church. It was what they called a pseudepigraphal book. It was a book that was written by some, it wasn't written by Moses. It was written by somebody else who put the name of Moses on it. And, uh, but it contained this story. And so Jude is referencing that story. But he said, hey, Michael, even that story stayed within the lines. See, he knew it was God's prerogative to pronounce judgment on Satan. So he doesn't do that. In contrast to these men who wanted to set their own limits, they don't want to follow God's parameters. They want to set their own. Verse 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebel, rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Wow, it's powerful stuff there. They, these guys, they revile things they don't understand. They even go beyond their own instinct. Like unreasoning animals. Unreasoning animals follow their instinct. These guys aren't even doing that. And because of that, they are bringing judgment on themselves. So we should, we should fight. We should fight because of the value of what's been given to us. We should fight because of the judgment that sin brings. And we should fight because of the danger they bring. Those who would twist the truth. This graphic description, these false teachers are described to these three men from the Old Testament now, these bad actors, all who, who wanted to do things their own way. Cain, who brought his bloodless offering. He thought God should be satisfied with that. And of course, God was not. And so Cain wanted to do things his way. He didn't like the requirements. He was proud. He was self-willed. And what did he end up doing? He ended up killing his brother. Then there was Balaam. Balaam's a prophet who was money hungry. And he came up with a plan to lure Israel into idolatry and immorality for his own beliefs. He, he leveraged his influence as a faith leader to lead people away from God so that he could fulfill his love of money and ultimately brought God's judgment. And then there was Korah, a Levite who had responsibilities in the tabernacle, but when he wasn't chosen as a priest, he blew up. He rebelled against God by rebelling against Moses and Aaron. 
All of these were people who didn't like lines being drawn, limiting what they wanted to do. Guys who want to do things their way instead of God's. And Jews says, these guys, they're like hidden reefs in your love feast. Love feast sounds a little strange to us. It wasn't as weird as it sounds. It was just a meal that they'd share together following their worship. It was a time for them as believers to be together. And, and, and he's saying, these guys are there. They're unrecognized. They're like a hidden reef. Hidden reef, it's an unseen danger that can rip open the hole of a ship. These guys are unseen dangers to the church, caring only for themselves. They look good, but they're really dangerous. They're clouds without rain. You know, they, they, they have the promise of rain, but there's no rain. They're autumn trees that should be full of fruit, but there's no fruit. They're wild waves foaming up their shame. They cause confusion. So they're, they, they look good, but they're not producing. They're, they bring confusion, and then they're wandering stars. They don't deliver what they promise. It's like a, a shooting star. That's, they, they flame out quickly. They're over in just a second. We should not be shocked when someone says they no longer believe. When someone says, you know, the term in the last decade or so that's become popular, they deconstruct. They act like that's something new. There's nothing new about that. It's been going on since the New Testament. That's what's going on here. Guys who are all bluster, but there's no benefit. Autumn trees with no fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, no fruit, no root, dead as a doornail, for whom the black darkness, Jude says, has been reserved forever. The fact is, eternity is at stake. So earnestly contend for the faith. What are you fighting for? What are you spending your time and energy on with your life. What is it? Fight for the faith because of the value of what you've been given, because of the judgment that God brings on sin, because of the danger that it can bring to the church. Be aware, be alert, be careful, be courageous, fight for the faith. You know, it's not just summer that's going by fast. It's our lives, right? How are you spending it? What are you fighting for? Fight for the faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us in calling us, in loving us, in keeping us, in multiplying in our lives mercy and peace and love. And Father, giving us examples to give us direction in life. For this great faith, Father, I pray that we stand and we fight. And, and when we see those shooting stars, 
God, that we would be able to stand firm for the faith. When people and thoughts are dangerous to the church, God, that we would stand firm for the faith. Help us, God. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Thank you, God, for bringing us into relationship with you and giving us the opportunity to serve you in this world. And we look forward, Father, to the rest of our lives, however long they may be, serving you and in eternity in your presence. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.